You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. May 2017, Emmanuel Macron, a centrist, won the French presidential election, upending France's traditionally two-party system. The victory for Macron's party, En Marche, was an outlier amidst a wave of populism and nationalism around the world. How did Macron succeed, where many others and other countries failed? On Wednesday, September 20th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar titled Reinventing Democracy, Macron's Victory in France, to help answer this question. Guillaume Leger, MPA, Harvard Kennedy School Class of 2010, and Bruno Poisson, MPA, Harvard Kennedy School Class of 2017, returned to the Kennedy School to discuss the reinvention of political parties in France. Leger, founder of the European political data firm Leger Mueller-Pons, worked as a consultant to the Macron campaign. Poisson assumed office this summer as a member of France's National Assembly from President Macron's political party En Marche. Leger and Poisson explored how En Marche's listening campaign helped turn France's traditional political dynamic on its head and how other parties and political movements might learn from their success. Ash Center faculty affiliate Marshall Gans moderated, and Arthur Goldhammer, senior affiliate at the Center for European Studies, served as a respondent. This event was co-sponsored by the Center for Public Leadership, HKS Alumni Relations and Resource Development, and the Center for European Studies. Great. Why don't we get started so we can maximize our time here? Welcome, everyone, this afternoon. My name's Arkan Fung. I'm a faculty member here at the Kennedy School. I work on uh, democratic politics, and I'm part of the con- kind of convening, organizing group that brings together these events on how to rebuild uh, democ- our democracy, kind of broadly speaking. Uh, as we start the semester, I'm sure a lot of people in this room, I know I am, are concerned about the quality and persistence of uh, democratic politics around the world and the challenges facing our societies everywhere. When we look around, it's tempting to think that political events in many places are being driven by a kind of reactionary populism. One of the students uh, in a meeting on democracy earlier a couple of weeks ago said, you know, the thing that I want to understand is it seems like a dark force is driving a lot of events in the world, and I don't really understand that. Um, I think that part of what we're seeing is a widespread moment of political insurgency in which many people in many countries are upset with the status quo offerings of mainstream candidates and mainstream political parties. These insurgencies can take many forms, some of them bad for democracy, but perhaps some of them good for it. So we see overperforming insurgencies in the unexpected successes of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in the United States to the Brexit leavers and Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, and to the victory of Emmanuel Macron and En Marche against the left and right standard bearers of French politics. This appears to be the moment of the insurgent. Today, we'll uh, explore the victory of En Marche as an object lesson in how democratic methods of deep canvassing, organizing, and electronic communication can harness popular energy to what we hope is more positive political possibilities. Uh, it's still the early days of En Marche. Everyone recognizes the challenge of transforming a small-D democratic movement and democratic campaign into a successful way of governing, and I'm sure that will be one of the large issues that we address tonight. As we'll hear in a moment, 
uh, this group is especially interesting from the perspective of the Kennedy School. Some of the political leadership and organizing that we teach here at the Kennedy School inform the strategy of Amarsh and several alums, one of which who has uh, gracefully and generously decided to join us here tonight, are at, were active in the party movement and are now members of the French National Assembly. Um, Marshall, in a moment, will uh, introduce our speakers. Uh, and, but first, I want to introduce Marshall, and I want to say a couple of things. First, tonight's conversation will continue throughout the semester, and we hope that you'll be part of it. Visit the Ash Center's website to sign up for the Dem Democracy Program updates. And I also want to thank, uh, take a moment to thank our co-sponsors for tonight's event, the Center for Public Leadership, the HKS Alumni Relations and Resource Development Office, and the Center for European Studies. A couple of comments, a uh, couple of uh, kind of caveats. First, this event will be photographed, live streamed, and journalists are in the room, so you should be aware of that in your remarks. Uh, second, we'll be taking comments not only from the room, but also from the audience and in the Facebook live stream on the Ash Center webpage, and hopefully a lot of alums are watching that tonight. Um, now, uh, the moderator for tonight's event is my good friend and colleague, Marshall Gans, who's a senior lecturer in public policy here at the Kennedy School. Uh, he entered Harvard College in uh, 1960. He left a year before graduating to volunteer uh, in the 1964 Mississippi Summer Project, and he got his degree in 1992. So he kind of took a gap quarter century. Uh, what did he do in that quarter century? He had many, 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 many important things for us. Uh, we're uh, all beneficiaries of Marshall's gap quarter century. Uh, he worked with a student nonviolent coordinating committee. If you don't know what that is, uh, Google it and uh, read some books on it. He then uh, worked for Cesar Chavez and was instrumental uh, in organizing the United Farm Workers. Uh, during the 1980s, he worked with all kinds of grassroots organizations in the United States and uh, later on around the world. In 1991, he came back to Harvard University, finished Harvard College, uh, got an MPA at the Kennedy School, and then completed his PhD in sociology here at Harvard in 2000. Um, in 2009, he published a, a fantastic book called Why David Wins Leadership, Organization, and Strategy in the California Farm Workers Movement that offers lots of lessons, not just from, for farm workers and agricultural organizing, but for many of the people in this room who are concerned, I think, with uh, how David can win and making that happen. Marshall Gans. Okay, thanks, Arkham. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right, much better. Come on, we got to, you know. That's how you do it. Yeah, there. All right. Um, I, I want to begin by re reading a couple of paragraphs from Le Jour. Uh, January 24th, uh, 2017. There is fog in the windows. At the entrance to the cafe, an activist checks the sign-ups. We're over 100, he says, smartphone by hand to count the participants. I find one of the last seats next to a woman who will spend the two-hour session tapping on her phone before leaving before the end, and two 30-year-old men look uh, falsely nonchalant, friends since high school, Simone and Jean-Philippe, in Paris on a Sunday morning in January, the members of the 9th and 10th arrondissement of the movement of Emmanuel Macron on Marche met in this cafe with transparent walls located on the Place de la République 
It is a small world in itself, heated, enthusiastic, happy to come together. How many of you are members? Stanislaw Guerini, marketing director, is at the microphone. He donned a gray sweatshirt with the slogan, En Marche. This 30-year-old is responsible for the movement in Paris. Céline Calvé, communicating, is the referent for the 9th and 10th arrondissement. She leads the meeting. The movement counts one representative per department and one per arrondissement for the capital. Gender equality is respected. Céline Calvé smiled, welcomed the result. In the 9th, we have one member per 60 inhabitants, she said. The majority of the audience is convinced, already active. To be a member, in fact, is to be registered. Simply go to the website of En Marche, click on Jadhir, then confirm by return mail after having sworn not to be a robot. It's free. Each meeting starts with the announcement of the count to the nearest day of their number. It automatically updates itself on the website. A little glimpse into the past. On May 14th, five months ago, Emmanuel Macron was inaugurated president of France. Although known politically, he had never held elective office and at 39 became the youngest president of France. One month later, in June, in the elections to the National Assembly, his movement, En Marche, would win an outright governing majority of 308 seats out of 577, over half of the seats held by people who were entirely new to politics, including three HKS alumni. This accompanied by going directly to... All this was accomplished by going directly to the citizenry around established parties that had governed France for most of the post-war era and marginalizing what many feared would be a resurgent populist right. How did this happen? What does it mean? What can we learn from it? These are the questions that this afternoon's discussion is intended to explore. First, insurgency. How was En Marche able to go directly to the citizenry to bypass established parties that have governed France for most of the post-war era? How did this carry over to legislative elections, in effect creating a new party? How will this party differ from what has gone before? Second, governance. How will this kind of grassroots campaigning turn into the work of governing at the legislative level and at the executive level? Obama supporters who built an inclusive, strong, highly mobilized campaign lost heart when the administration chose to govern in a much more business-as-usual way. Can the French do better? Or is it built into the differences between campaigning and governing? Third, politics and policy. Will our Marsh innovative approach to campaigning translate into innovative policy as well? As well? And if so, what will it look like? Will our Marsh govern with a center-right perspective, as some argue? Or will it bring a genuinely fresh perspective to policy challenges facing the regime? We're privileged to have with us today a panel of participants well-equipped to guide us in this inquiry. First, uh, Guillaume Liget grew up in Strasbourg, France, near the German border. His father was a high school dean and his mother a teacher who worked in a poor neighborhood in which Guillaume, Guillaume i got to get it right, Guillaume, uh, grew up. Uh, until his parents moved to get access to better schools. He studied economics and business at HEC, France's most elite business school, but where he also became interested in politics upon realizing that almost everyone there came from similar privileged backgrounds. Upon graduation in 2003, he went off to China for two years where he moonlighted as a photographer of construction sites and coal, mi coal mines. But he had also become a fan of the West Wing. Remember that TV show, The West Wing? 
And when he realized he could never become a U.S. president, alas, he came to the Kennedy School to find another pathway to public work. He volunteered for the Obama campaign, learned how it actually worked, and after completing his studies in 2010, returned to France, worked for a time with McKinsey, served as national field director for uh, Francois Hollande's 2012 presidential campaign, and co-founded Leger, Miller and Ponce, a firm with particular focus on engaging people more directly in the political process and developing the technology to enable it. In the past four years, LMP has served some 1,000 clients in six European countries, offices in Paris, London, and Berlin. Gilman and his firm played a key role in the development of Marche in particular and the Macron campaign more generally. He is also a lecturer at Science Po, where he teaches electoral campaigns. Please welcome Guillaume Leger. <laughs> Yeah, I need French coaching, boy. <laughs> this is, okay. Uh, uh, Bruin Franz Poisson was born in Washington, D.C., so she could be a U.S. president, Guillaume. <laughs> but grew up in, uh, in the Vaucluse, where her father is a consultant and her mother restores art. She studied at Sciences Po Eggs and then the London School of Economics. Remaining in the U.K., she served as a project manager for NESTA, the National Endowment for Science technology and the arts, continuing her interest in innovation and development in India, and then in the United States, serving in public, private, and voluntary sectors. Serving as a researcher in social innovation and, and uh, corporate social responsibility in Boston, she graduated from the Kennedy School last spring. She returned to France and was elected to the French National Assembly from Vaucluse constituency, registered with La République en Marche group, and now serves as junior Minister for Ecological Transition. Please welcome Brun Croissant. Now, our third panelist, Art Goldhammer, grew up in Plainfield, New Jersey, where his father was a mechanical engineer and his mother a secretary and homemaker. When he was 16, his father's employer, General Instruments, moved to South Carolina to escape its union. South Carolina schools were so weak that he applied directly to MIT from his junior year in high school and was accepted and began his study of mathematics, study that was interrupted when he was drafted into the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. Because he spoke French, the Army thought it would be, he would be a good candidate to learn Vietnamese. And a <laughs> Military intelligence. <laughs> and after six months of training, in the language, he was sent to Vietnam, where he spent nine months working in military intelligence. This experience changed his priorities, so after finishing his PhD in math and teaching for two years at Brandeis, he went to Paris to work on a novel. Running out of money, he began translating French books, which led to a career as a translator and scholar of French politics, society, and culture. Over the past 40 years, translating more than 125 books, including Tocqueville's Democracy in America, and Piquet's capital in the 21st century. An affiliate of the Harvard Center for European Studies, he writes widely on, Fran widely on France uh, uh, for the nation, American Prospect, Democracy, and other publications. Please welcome Art Goldhammer. So let's get started. We have three questions about insurgency, governance, politics, and policy. Uh, and to lead off, we'll ask each, well, we're going to ask each of the panelists to speak for about 10 minutes, uh, and then we'll proceed 
from there. So, uh, well, thank you very much. I'm actually very happy to, uh, to be back at the Kennedy School, though to be honest, I've always thought that I'd be back with a motorcade uh, as the French president, <laughs> but uh, obviously someone else took that idea. So, um, so and actually we're here to talk about, about that uh, uh, tonight. And so as someone who could have taken Marshall's uh, public narrative class once said, tonight is a particular honor for me because let's face it, my presence on this stage is pretty unlikely. I was in, who was that? I was introduced <laughs> uh, to politics by a fake American president named uh, Jed Bartlett and to campaigns innovations when I became a volunteer for uh, Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. And what I'd like to talk today about is more the insurgency dimension. So how someone who started from nothing launched successfully uh, a new political movement en marche. Because when Emmanuel Macron decided to launch En Marche, let's face it, him becoming president of France was pretty unlikely. So he was, uh, you may know that, he was a former investment ba banker. Uh, in France, we still have a tendency to mispronounce capitalism. So you can imagine uh, how, how good that is when you want to run for president. He was 38 year old. He had no prior political experience. He was not an elected official. And he was closely associated with François Hollande, who was a fairly unpopular uh, uh, president. So not exactly the easiest thing uh, to do. And he was not the first one to, uh, to have the idea to launch a new political movement. Many other people have tried that before, but everyone has failed. So uh, let's maybe take a minute and try to understand and repair the mic. Is it still working? Yes. Uh, let's try to, to put ourselves in Emmanuel Macron's shoes before he launched En Marche. There were a couple of daunting questions that he was facing. The first was, how do you create a new movement and make it last beyond the initial attention that you, know, you will have when you launch the movement? How do you make it to build a solid movement that will last more than, than four weeks? How do you make it credible when you're facing very big established uh, political party? And how do you change people's perception that En Marche was by the elite for the elite? Because that's what many people thought at uh, the very beginning. So how did it work? I mean, how did, what did it differently than other people who had started other uh, political initiatives before? Uh, I'd like to say that he just had a better technology, but it's actually a more complicated um, uh, story. So what do you do when you want to find out about the best campaign on earth. You turn to, go to Barack Obama, and if you look closely at uh, Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, I think in a nutshell, what it was about uh, was technology, data, and human all together. That's what Barack Obama had uh, successfully implemented. And that's what Emmanuel Macron had in mind when he started his movement. And the first thing he did was to organize something called La Grande Marche, um, the Great Walk, uh, in a way. Uh, the Grande Marche was about using technology to mobilize volunteers and send them knocking at doors. But not just to do get out the vote, uh, like you may have done uh, you know, a year ago uh, for one or another candidate, uh, because En Marche was launched more than a year before the election. So it was made no sense to do get out the vote. Emmanuel Macron wanted people to go out and listen 
to French citizens. The objective was to go all across the country to listen to all French citizens, not only to French citizens who could support Emmanuel Macron. The idea was to go uh, everywhere and not to ask them, you know, uh, to vote for him, obviously. That was too early. He was not a candidate at all at the time. Um, it was not about asking them what, what the new president should do. It was about asking them eight open questions to understand how they view France at the time. What gave them hope? What worried them? Why, how they see, they see, they saw uh, uh, politics. And um, in a way, La Grande Marche, this uh, off-campaign, door-to-door uh, operation, listening uh, operation, helped Emmanuel Macron and En Marche respond to many of the questions the movement was facing. So to uh, people who said that he had no prior political experience, he responded by organizing what no other established parties had done before. This may sound surprising, but French political parties have a huge tendency to stay behind closed doors. I mean, I don't know if you have uh, you know, uh, uh, French amongst uh, in your circles who, have, uh, who are French socialists. I know them quite well, having campaigned for François Hollande in 2012. But French socialists, they tend to know only French socialists. The problem is, as you may have seen during the last election, there are not many French socialists left in France. So if you want to understand uh, the country, you have to, uh, to cast a, a wider net. Um, to critics who said Macron en marche was for the elite, by the elite, he responded by sending volunteers all across the country in large cities, small towns, villages, everywhere, to engage with everyone who was nice enough to, uh, to open the door. And to those who accused en marche of being just a media bubble that would collapse at some point, um, he used the Grand Marche to start structuring a movement uh, that, and, and you know, uh, the upcoming campaign, a movement that uh, is still alive today, and quite alive, and that has... Alive? Quite alive. Yeah. Very. very sorry, very alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. No, no, very alive. <laughs> sorry, I live in London. You know, the British, I tend to... Uh, you know, anyway. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Very alive. Um, <laughs> and he responded by... So people were saying, you have no political experience, and what he, he was actually, en marche, was campaigning very, very, very intensively at a time where no other political party was doing anything. Remember, this was more than a year before uh, the election. So La Grande Marche, it's 6,000 volunteers who knocked at doors all across the country, collected 25,000 conversations. Uh, on average, it lasted 14 minutes, uh, you know, which is you know, a decent uh, amount of time. And the total amount of conversation, eventually it was as big as a couple of War and Peace, you know, the Tolstoy book. It's a big book, a couple of books. Um, and how it was used? Well, ma many ways. Um, uh, the, Emmanuel Macron presented the diagnostic that was uh, built based on those conversations. Um, the, all the conversations collected by the local En Marche committees were sent back to uh, local organizers. They used that afterwards to uh, start uh, suggesting new policy proposals. Uh, based on you know what people had said locally about uh, how they view uh, view the they view the country, um, so it was really meant to force the movement to in a way get out of the office, to design a program not only based on what experts have to say, but also on what people who may benefit from the policy uh, may uh, uh, may um, have, um, uh, were, were thinking. Um, 
so maybe just to, to, to conclude uh, uh, what will happen now, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you have uh, uh, much more insight uh, than I do. So the only thing I'd mention is I think what is key to, this is just season one, right? I mean, this was just season one. It's, uh, and it's probably, you know, changing friends. It's, it's, it's going to be a very long story. So this is the beginning of, uh, of season two. And I think in season two, what's important is to keep the spirit that presided over the creation of En Marche, which is make sure that you continue to get out of the office. Um, I run a startup, and uh, when you read startup manuals, people always say, get out of the office, because if you design your product behind closed doors, nobody will buy them. So you have to go out uh, of the office. And I believe that is very true in, in politics. Um, it's just the beginning. The risk of having uh, you know, a populist candidate being successful in five years is still very high. Um, there are still many people who feel disconnected from politics. And the problem is we do not have any uh, magic trick. Any, there's no secret recipe to solve all those problems at once. But I really believe that if you continue to spend the time to get out of the office and continue to listen to people who feel that politics is not for them, well, maybe step by step we'll, uh, we'll find the, uh, the solutions. So after La Grande Marche, it's just the beginning of a long march, uh, a very long walk. Thank you. Right on time. Yeah, excellent. Wow, yeah. I'm not French anymore. <laughs> yeah, uh, so first of all, let me, um, you know, uh, I'm feeling a bit emotional. You know, I'm very happy to be back here uh, to see some old friends. Uh, it's really nice. And so thank you so much for, for having me. Uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, <coughs> so what happened uh, for me and for uh, France in the span of one year in itself is really, um, is really emblematic of, of what En Marche did. I mean, I remember not long ago I was sitting here and then um, I helped with the presidential campaign and then, and then I ran for member of parliament, won in one of the most difficult constituencies in France, and then um, became <coughs> a, a member of the government. So all this in a span of one year, one could think it's normally totally impossible to do. So, so let, let me perhaps tell you a bit more about, about the story and, and how everything happened. Um, <clears throat> although it's, it's always a bit difficult to talk about French politics in the US because our, our political systems are, are so different. You know, our, um, in France we've had, um, we've had five republics, two empires, when you know, you've had only one regime. And sometimes we give strange names to political parties like uh, unsubmissive friends, for example, for La France Insoumise. So perhaps <laughs> let me go back to really the, the very beginning and the essence of, of En Marche, which is always, always very tricky to translate. You know, how, how did we translate it? I've been struggling a lot. Does it mean forward, um, on the move, on the go, walking? You know, it's always, always difficult. But basically what En Marche means is really progress and movement. And I think, I think this is really at the very basis, at the very basics of, uh, of, of the movement. Because the movement was created on a very simple idea and diagnosis, is that France was ripe for transformation. And 
for, for so long our country was stuck in very high unemployment rates, in political struggles, you know, that were pretty uh, futile and, and high, you know, the, the level of mistrust was very high. It was easy to be sort of pessimistic and to feel that we were just at the, at the end of a, of a whole process. So, you know, just realizing and, and being aware of, of the fact that France was actually ripe for transforming itself was already huge. And this was sort of the basis of the Grande Marche, which is what you've just described in detail, Guillaume, so I'm not going to get into that. But, but this was really, that's how we built really the program for the movement, you know, really based on getting out and, and talking to people. That, that was really, um, so I, I was planning to talk about that a bit, but you know, you've done that. So um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to perhaps switch to the president, I mean, Emmanuel Macron's vision. It was based on three main strategic uh, vision. First, it was that the divide in French politics is not between right and left, but rather between the, the ultra-conservative or the conservatives and the progressists. That was really how uh, the, the, the candidate Macron really saw the divide. And so this left a, a huge platform at the center, basically, to, <coughs> to bring forward progressive ideas and, and pro-European principles. And, and what he wanted to do was to unify at the center, on this platform, all those who were willing to transform the country based on discussions and pragmatic reforms. The idea was to go really beyond uh, ideological uh, divisions that were no longer relevant to people's lives. You know? The idea was to, be, to just bring pragmatism uh, in, in politics. You know, what is the problem? How do we solve it? How do we bring energies together to actually solve it? Uh, that was the idea. A second uh, important part of the vision of, of the candidate was that he was bold enough to bring Europe back to the center, back to, um, back to our, our discussion and to, to, to identities. The idea was that there was still hope for Europe as a political and economic power with uh, common responsibilities. And that was extremely bold of him um, because most of the ultra-left and uh, far-right parties in France just were built on the idea that, you know, Europe was no longer relevant, it was a burden for, for people, and that um, <coughs> it was no longer uh, providing solutions to people on the contrary. And so En Marche act actively campaigned on the opposite platform, that European integration was not the problem, on the contrary, that we were facing problems that were so big that we needed to, to be to come to get to yeah come together that was the idea and i remember even during my campaign this was really the european idea was really really uh, something that was very difficult to to fight and it was really a bone of contentious contention between the, the far right party and and en marche and then perhaps i mean the third idea the third key part of the vision of, of emmanuel macron was that you can actually achieve economic efficiency and social, social justice by reconciling liberty and equality. It sounds pretty obvious, you know, and pretty commonplace. But our view is really that economic policies are complementary to effective social policies. You know, it's a d dynamic that requires investments in health, 
education, the green economy, so that people can make the most of their talents and their capabilities. It's a bit, I don't know if you're familiar with Amartya Sen, but it's sort of, sort of uh, along those lines. And I think, so these were like the three main ideas and key ideas of, of uh, key vision of, of our, our candidates. But I think another thing that was also very important was the optimism. You know, the flow of, of sort of positive energy. And, and the idea, that that's what the candidate also talked about, you know, the idea that France was not stuck, that we, we, were, we were, France could be back because France had never gone away. And I think, and what's also uh, fascinating is that it's not only something that he promoted himself, it's also something that was actually, that became a reality for, for everybody, for all the members of, of the party. Again, I remember going to huge political meetings where, you know, it's a big crowd, you get excited, and then you know, when you hear your, your candidate talk about your polit the political opponents, you know, it's very easy to, to start booing and to start sort of insult not, not insulting, but just being harsh on your opponent. And this is something that we never did. And, and it is quite hard, you know, when you have 200,000 people or even more across the country fighting ideas such as you know, Front National or, or, or others. You know, this, this um, uh, bienveillance or benevolence was actually <coughs> absolutely critical also. It, it's, it was a very important uh, part of the success, I think, of the movement. Um, <clears throat> but perhaps now I should also go through the different stages of how uh, En Marche actually really came to power. Um, <coughs> and the first, let me start with the presidential campaign because this is where everything started. So again, we had the Long March, and uh, I'm not going to go through that. But the, the party was really built as a startup with, on the, with unlimited access to users. You could just go online, click on a few you know, uh, buttons, and just become a member. And you could become a member of En Marche, and at the same time be a member of another political party. And I think, I think this was quite, uh, quite powerful. What also you could do is uh, set up a local committee in, in your city, in your town, in your village. Basically, if you wanted to get involved, you could. It was extremely easy, and it created a lot of emulation within the country. Um, <clears throat> and that's, that's how in, in, like in about 12 months or in a year, the, we have reached 400,000 members that were uh, located in about uh, 4,000 local branches. And so this is huge. And when you think about it in one, in, in one year, when you think about the Socialist Party, for example, or other parties, you know, it took centuries, I mean, not centuries, but uh, decades. To achieve, sorry, it's not that old, but um, decades. <coughs> so, so really the idea was to have an, an open, um, open structure. Another, and then, um, then so, so in the end, everyone felt that they could be involved. And that, that was also a s very strong basis for uh, the parliamentary campaign. Because we had a, ne a very wide network of, uh, of people, of members in the field. And so that's why um, in, January, uh, in January this year, also, one of the ideas, I don't know if you're familiar with it, for French, it's, so, it's, it's kind of uh, obvious, but one of the, the main revolutionary things that um, En Marche promoted, but that you could, to become a member and a candidate, uh, to become, sorry, a member of parliament, 
you could just, you had to apply online. So, yes, it's a little, uh, it's, it's, I, I did that, you know, <coughs> I, I remember. So, <coughs> you could, you, it was just like a questionnaire, you, you had to, well, it's, uh, exactly, it was a bit like applying to, um, to, to a school, like to, to Harvard, you know, it's, um, it's not the same, obviously, but, uh, and so, so to show you the, the, the success, so in France, there are uh, a bit less than uh, 600 member of parliaments, and about, so seats that could be allocated, and about 20,000 people applied across France. Um, <coughs> so the idea, and it was extremely bold at the time, the idea, and it still is, <laughs> uh, it's uh, the, the criteria you would be, the, the criteria to choose the candidates would be obviously gender parity, integrity, diversity, change, and also obviously a commitment to support uh, uh, candidate Macron. And so <coughs> En Marche ran a collaborative campaign with both uh, top-down and bottom-up strategies. Bottom up with 1,000 local sections, as I mentioned, and top down with really a unified uh, platform that could answer to your question on, on a 24 by 7 basis, and you would have a ready to use website that you could use. I made great use of it. Um, I know I'm speaking too much. Yeah. I'm, I'm Take another minute. Okay. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll, um, I'll keep a few things and, and just. Um, just say that, that now it's um, <coughs> now it's we're facing a new phase, as you say. You know, the, the party is entering, the movement is entering a second phase. Of now we are in power. We we managed to do that, and so we need to to really uh, keep reinventing ourselves. And I think one of the the way we're going to do that is by actually always being in touch with the field, with real people, well, real. real um, citizens, and, and I think this is one of the ways, but we'll talk about that more later. Thank you. <laughs> Art. Okay, uh, so is this working? Um, so you've heard that uh, Emmanuel Macron is president of France because of the uh, power of his ideas, the attractiveness of his personality, and the skill of his campaign. Uh, I'm going to take a somewhat more cynical view, as befits my old age. I've been uh, observing French politics uh, closely since 1968, uh, which I think is a longer period of time than the ages of my two companions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I, I'm somewhat relations. My explanation for Macron's uh, victory is that he's the luckiest man on the face of the earth. <laughs> He has the personality of a high-stakes gambler. Uh, he was not, as you've heard, a <laughs> career politician. He never ran for elective office. This gave him a certain liberty. He could uh, resign as minister of Francois Hollande, uh, take the risk of running for president with very long odds against him, and if he lost, go back to a career in investment banking. There were many people uh, eager for his services. So it was a big risk that he took, but it was not really gambling with his life. He would have been successful in whatever he did. Uh, he was lucky in that he uh, ran for president after two successive failed presidencies in France. 
Uh, Nicolas Sarkozy had uh, come into office also promising great reforms uh, in a more market-friendly direction, the same uh, direction that Emmanuel Macron is proposing to move. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, he, he was uh, uh, sandbagged by the Great Recession, which came in the middle of his presidency. He had actually be begun to decline in popularity even before that hit. Uh, François Hollande was elected on uh, a promise to, uh, on a, a pledge that uh, his only enemy was the world of finance. Uh, and then he immediately uh, turned in another direction when he took office. And personifying that direction was uh, his eventual minister of the economy, Emmanuel Macron. So the policies for which Hollande became extremely unpopular, so that his approval rating when he finally decided not to be a candidate had fallen to 5%. The architect of the policies that had made him so popular was Emmanuel Macron. There was first the Loi Macron, and then the Loi El Khomri, which uh, bears the name of another minister, but in, for which Macron uh, uh, bore a great deal of responsibility. Uh, he began uh, preparing his run while he was still a minister, he formed this movement that you've heard about, uh, announcing that it was merely an exploratory movement. Uh, but he was already beginning to raise money, not only in France, but also in the United States. He was also gathering behind him a uh, large array of intellectuals who were planning his uh, policy positions. Uh, people at the Institut Montaigne, for example, were behind his campaign. Uh, even before it was a campaign. Now, this was uh, a big risk for a sitting minister to take, but it was also a very shrewd move because uh, the dramaturgy of this rebellion within the presidency, the idea that someone who was still a minister would begin an exploratory movement, which looked to everyone like the beginning of a presidential uh, run, uh, was uh, a bold thing to do and could have gotten him fired from the cabinet. But François Hollande uh, had a particular bond with uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron. He, he told uh, two journalists who later published the revelation that he considered Macron his spiritual son. Uh, so he did not fire him. He kept him on and let Macron determine his own fate. Finally, in August, uh, several months after having formed this movement, he decided that he would uh, announce his candidacy. Now, when he did, almost no one gave him a chance of winning. Uh, my friends on the left were resigned to voting for Alain Juppé, who was going to be a candidate of the right, because they thought that François Hollande, who would uh, naturally run to uh, uh, replace himself, to succeed himself, uh, had no chance of winning, and that uh, the most palatable candidate and the most likely to stop Marine Le Pen was Alain Juppé. Uh, all the polls put Juppé a long way in front. Uh, but the right-wing party, the Republicans, had decided for the first time this year to hold a primary. They were uh, following the example of the Socialists who had held a primary in uh, 2007 and again in 2012. And the Republican analysis was that this primary had uh, stimulated interest in the candidates of the party and uh, would be a useful uh, tactical measure to take. 
But <clears throat> turning to the voters in a democracy is always a risky thing to do. Uh, the voters who had told the pollsters they were going to vote for Alain Juppé in the end uh, did not turn out. And uh, the surprise was that uh, the Republican primary was won by the candidate that everyone had placed third, François Fillon. Uh, continuing the streak of Emmanuel Macron's luck, François Fillon, was then, uh, who, who then became the odds-on favorite to win, was then hit by a scandal which no one had foreseen, uh, a revelation by uh, a satirical newspaper, Le Canard Enchaîné, which had somehow gotten hold of uh, the fact that he had employed members of his family uh, as parliamentary assistants, uh, that his wife had taken 100,000 euros to write two book reviews of three pages, uh, and that he had received uh, suits worth uh, about six months of the minimum wage uh, from uh, a donor who was seeking political influence. Uh, all of these revelations uh, sank Fillon's campaign. Uh, Macron was then lucky that the socialists had a primary uh, and the victor of that prime, first of all, Francois Hollande decided that uh, he had to give up because uh, he was at 5%. Uh, the socialists had a primary in which the candidate who might have been the strongest, Manuel Valls, uh, could only begin his campaign very late because he was the prime minister under Hollande and had decided to remain loyal, unlike Macron, to his president. Uh, so he... Uh, uh, ran a very hastily assembled campaign, which uh, did not go over very well. He had lost popularity because of his association with Hollande, inexplicably because uh, uh, Macron had retained his popularity despite his close association with Hollande. Uh, and then uh, uh, the socialist primary was won by, the uh, again, the person who had been rated least popular by all the pollsters beforehand, Benoit Hamon who, by the way, was uh, backed by uh, Thomas Piketty, the, whose book I translated, and uh, Piketty's sister-in-law was the chairman of the campaign. Um, but uh, despite the uh, economic advice he received from Piketty, his campaign went nowhere. Uh, so the French voters were left with a choice uh, among uh, essentially uh, f four viable candidacies. Three uh, populist insurgencies, uh, Mélenchon's on the far left, Marine Le Pen's on the far right, and Macron's a centrist insurgency. Uh, there is a book that has just been published by the novelist Philippe Besson, who was recruited by Macron to write an account of his campaign. All of the, uh, the last three presidential uh, uh, victors in France have all had... Uh, writers following their campaigns who have produced books. Philippe Besson uh, produced this book, uh, uh, which I've just read. I was in France last week. I bought the book and read it on the plane home. And uh, Besson quotes uh, somebody who was at Macron headquarters on the night of the victory and who confidently predicted that Macron was going to win because he was the only candidate that no one had any reason to vote against. People had very strong reasons to vote against uh, the three other candidates. Fillon because of his scandal, uh, uh, Marine Le Pen because she represented the uh, extreme right, the xenophobic and racist extreme right, and Mélenchon because uh, his uh, support for Putin, his support for uh, Chavez in Venezuela, uh, and his uh, 
uh, hostility to the European Union made him rather unpopular. So for all these reasons, Macron was able to uh, gain, win 24% uh, of the first round vote, which put him just ahead of Marine Le Pen at 21%, uh, and therefore qualified for the second round. Once it came down to a two-person contest between uh, Macron and Le Pen, it was uh, a foregone conclusion that Macron was going to win. So that's my explanation. Uh, I don't disagree with the analyses that Macron uh, has very sensible policies, by far the most sensible of all the candidates, that he has an attractive personality, that he recruited lots of young people with lots of enthusiasm, and that he had the boldness uh, to run a campaign in the center, which has always been considered a losing position in France. Conventional wisdom in France is that you had to be either on the left or on the right to win. The center was uh, uh, a place where one always lost. Uh, Macron had the boldness to do that. So I don't deny any of those things. But if uh, the stars had not aligned just right in the, all the ways I've described, he would not be president of France today. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. So if history is uh, a result of the intersection of, of intentionality and chance, uh, then we have uh, the benefit of two perspectives here, uh, which uh, may, uh, in combination, uh, get at uh, why what happened happened. So I, I'd like to go back uh, to uh, uh, Guillaume. Would you like to comment? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, <laughs> I think you're right. You know, to create, uh, achieve great things, you need to be lucky. I mean, I run a company. I have no idea if my company will still be alive in four years. But if it is, I, you know, yes, I, I will have worked hard. But I will have been lucky. I was lucky to meet uh, the people I started the company with. One is in, in the room today. I was lucky to have parents who put me in the right school. And eventually, I applied to Harvard. And that's literally, I owe a lot of my life today to the years I spent here. Uh, you know, there's a lot of luck behind this. Of course, I worked hard. Of course, I wrote tons of essay. I spent tons of time at the library and the college. It was, you know, of course, I worked hard, but I was lucky as well. And yes, Emmanuel Macron was lucky. And he knew that from the beginning. He knew that to win, he had to be lucky. But he decided to focus on things he could control. And that's what a good campaign does. There's a lot of things you do not control. But what you should do is identify where you can control and optimize it. And that's how it worked. I've worked with many, I've seen many campaigns across Europe. The level of professionalism of people of En Marche was really above anything else I've seen. Um, he had the idea to start a door-to-door -door campaign when he had no money, no volunteers, and he needed to get it up and running in five weeks. I mean, no established parties in Europe has ever managed to, done, to do that outside of a campaign period. In a campaign period, you know people get mobilized because there's an election coming. A year before, I don't know who took Steve Jarding's class here, but Steve Jarding teaches a class on campaigning, says a campaign starts two years before the election. In France, it's two, three months before the election. So a year, it's like, woohoo, super, super early. <laughs> uh, so uh, yes, he had to be lucky to win, absolutely. But he, what he did, what he achieved in a sense that he got people to join a political party uh, and many of them had never campaigned before. He got many people to become member of parliament with a very different background, which I think is amazingly important to change politics. You can't just have people who were local mayor, uh, deputy MP, MP, etc. 
the fact that many people come with many different experiences is government is amazing. Macron, uh, he wanted to make that work and it worked. So um, I completely agree with you, but I think the lessons, um, if there were uh, you know, lessons to be applied here, because you know, we took a lot of the innovations, uh, campaign innovations we observed in the US and we brought that to France, now we'd like to give back. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, what you should remember is that at trouble times, uh, when you want to change some things, it's always important to get out of your comfort zone, listen to people, and then, of course, hope for the best. And that, that's what Macron did. And I think it's uh, uh, I'm this idea of doing deep canvassing to step by step try to find the solutions to the rise of populist party and I think that's the right approach. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, it all I guess we're stuck in our cognitive biases, you know. <laughs> um, if, if you want to see it one way, well, it's difficult to, to see it a different way and, and vice versa. Um, of course, Emmanuel Macron was lucky, um, just like we all are. I was extremely lucky as well. Um, but I really, uh, I mean, I, I don't have much to add. I mean, I, I really agree with Guillaume that still, I think he made some very uh, important and bold choices, bold choices at the right time. And, and I, I, think, I think that's also how you win an election, you know? And so, and he clearly did that. Um, I, I'd just like to add to two more uh, notes on Macron's luck. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> uh, he was uh, lucky in uh, the Brexit vote. Uh, sentiment in France was running against, uh, 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 support for the EU had been declining for some time in France. The Brexit vote occurred, and in six months, there was a 15-point increase in support for Europe. And uh, Macron, to his great credit, uh, I'm a great supporter of the European Union, and to his great credit, he never hedged on his support for the European Union. He was staunchly in favor of it, and he hit the wave. The, as people began to fear that Brexit, that it was easy to criticize the European Union before the Brexit vote occurred, but it seemed that Brexit might actually precipitate disintegration of the EU, and the French did not want that. So Macron was the, the candidate who defended that. And then the election of Donald Trump in the United States struck the fear of God into people all across <laughs> Europe. Uh, and uh, uh, Macron was uh, uh, the best answer to Donald Trump. If you wanted to stop the wave of populism that had resulted in Brexit and had resulted in the election of Trump and that was threatening uh, to uh, uh, change politics in the Netherlands and in Austria, there, uh, there were uh, populist, uh, right-wing populist reactions all across Europe. Uh, Macron was the best person uh, in the best position to stop that. So those two yeah. things but, but also contributed to his life. If I may, but, but I think we should also um, really keep in mind the fact that the far right in France uh, had never been you know, as strong as it was. And that actually there was very deep, and I experienced it. Like, I, I could see it. Um, Brun, you chose to run in, Vo yes. run in Vaucluse, yes. which was not a district expected to be for Macron. Is that correct? Yes, <laughs> it was completely a losing. I mean, yeah, it was. Uh, why did you choose to run in a place that was such a losing place? Because it was. That's why I was uh, raised. Yeah. 
Um, so you know, in a way, Where's that's home? you know. No, so for, for different reasons. Um, first, because there's race there. So yeah. you know, I, I know the people, I know yeah. the place. I feel very strongly. Um, second, because I really wanted to fight the Front National. Like I, I, mm. I made it my mission. I, I, I saw it coming. Um, we had examples, and yes, the Brexit maybe was sort of a push, but for me it was something that I really wanted to do. I wanted, and, and, and also, um, also because this constituency was actually the constituency of the niece of, uh, of Marine Le Pen. So oh Marine oh Le Pen is her oh stronghold. She, she withdrew from the elections like a month before, but I was still fighting against her, her deputy. And so I think, you know, it was like a, a symbolic fight, and so I wanted. I, I How did you win? How did I win? You um, lucky, no? I was, <laughs> you know, I was going to say I was extremely lucky. Um, <laughs> yes, um, of course I was lucky, um, and then I I won by uh, looking at different things. First, by really listening to people. So I did my own sort of uh, march, long march, within my, my, my district. First, second, I started very low-key and very slowly so that the Front National re really didn't see me as a credible enemy. You know, so I could position uh, myself and, 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 and other, and catalyze the, the movement on the ground. And then I just I fought at the very end uh, quite harshly with the media, I mean, in the media against the... Right. And then what I did also was, uh, I knew, sorry, I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but I knew that I was going to win by very, by, um, by, by few votes. Yeah. And so I decided to go and get every single vote that I could, mm. uh, that, that would make, the, I, I, I thought that we would, uh, I would win by a thousand votes, so I decided to get out and actually win Mm. each of them. Um, and so uh, I did door-to-door -door markets. How long did you campaign? When, when did you I start? campaigned, so, <laughs> and now it gets very tricky because I'm talking here. Um, I <laughs> oh, you mean while you were in <laughs> school? <there was laughs> no, not because of that. <laughs> I, I actually, um, I decided, I decided I was going to, I was going to get involved in the presidential campaign in December. So I went back, I spent the whole uh, Christmas then when I came back, I, that, that's very embarrassing, I took <laughs> classes uh, of professors that were allowing me to spend most of my time in France. Uh -huh. <laughs> so embarrassing. Academic dean here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I spent, I, I traveled back and forth. I came back uh, when I had exams and stuff like that. And, uh, but, <laughs> and but the reason I ask, you know, there's a lot of talk about the need to engage red state. Red yes. states. It sounds like that's kind of what you did. Yes. And so, yeah, what, I mean, you've described how. How did you engage people who had such a different perspective? First, I think there was so much anger in people. I could really see it and feel it. Um, so I would actually uh, listen to their anger for quite a while. Um, and then I would try and, uh, and engage. And so I, I, I really wanted to show them how I was not the regular politician. Mm. Uh, I was not going to, I was not lying to them also. I was really telling them that yes, it was going to be hard and maybe they would vote for me, but I would not necessarily bring, you know, jobs to them. Like I would, I was trying to be honest. Mm. Good for you.
I'm looking. <laughs> Here you are. So now we've resolved the tension between choice and chance. Uh, no, I wonder if we could, we'll open up in just a moment, but I wonder if uh, this question of how the movement turns into a, a party, how, how the, the switch to governance works. Where is that at right now? How are people thinking about that? Guillaume, you want to start? And well, actually, I, I'm, maybe you have more no, insight than me. Uh, um, no, I think, the, I, th I think it's, you know, if you look at what happened in the U.S. after 2008, when Obama for America became organizing for America, um, the intentions was good, yeah. but it didn't work <coughs> because organizing for America became kind of a, a you know an echo chamber for a, for the propaganda of the White House. Um, in a way, you know, people were asked to push their congressmen and senators to vote for Obamacare, but the idea that you were active in the campaign and uh, kind of kind of disappeared. I mean, that's yeah, my yeah. understanding of, yeah. of of what happened, and. I mean, you can't blame you can't blame Obama. I mean, it's it's very hard to keep people motivated after the election because uh, you know starting from zero, getting a president elected, and then getting you know more than 300 candidates elected at, in Parliament. This is amazing. You know, after that, you just want to you know go on a holiday and, and relax and uh, you know <laughs> sleep. Uh, that's but 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 that's what you want to do, right? I mean, yeah. you, you can't. But <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, the, so the thing is, what, what could you do uh, differently looking at, at the American experience? Well, again, I'm not speaking in the name of En Marche, so, uh, <coughs> uh, but I think there are a couple of things. The first is, when it comes to implementing public policies, many public policies could benefit from the support of an organization like En Marche. Um, you know, if you look at Obamacare, for example, the implementation of Obamacare was supported by an organization called Enroll America, and Enroll America's mission was to target places where uninsured people were living and then sent, uh, in, in, in coordination with the local association, send volunteers, knock at doors, organize community meetings to make sure people would register for uh, for uh, 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 the affordable, uh, I mean, to, uh, to the website to, to get insurance. We do, in France, there are many public policies for which people have no idea. People don't know they exist, so they don't apply. They don't benefit from it. It's called non-recourse. I believe that if you have a strong movement that can mobilize people in the field, it could be very powerful to support the implementation of certain uh, public policies. One thing. Second thing, why is that that in France, great country, great culture, great food, great wine. So many people <laughs> are tired with politics and are not happy and do not think that politics can change their life. I mean, why is that? You know, politics should be about that, should be about how you change people's life. But even after the crazy election year we had, it's still the case that people think politics can't do anything for them. Again, I think what you did during your campaign, which is listen to people, let them speak about their problem, but not promise that you will solve everything. Having this kind of bold and you know, straightforward discourse is something that should continue, and that En Marche, again, uh, could, uh, could uh, help that. And also, there will be, very soon, European election. So for En Marche, which is so pro-Europe, it's going to be important to be successful for this European election. And maybe that's a lesson of, you know, uh, from OFA to OFA. Mm. Uh, it mm. made it possible to 
sustain some of the campaign organization. And then when Obama ran again, he didn't start from scratch. He had this organization ready to help him campaign. So again, I think the party, that should also be the role of the party, to prepare to win the 2019 uh, European election. And then there will be local elections. And I think that you really become a party once you start having like local elected officials, mm. not just people who are mm. at the national level, but also mm. local elected officials. I mean, many, 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 many missions so uh, for, for what En Marche could do. But again, uh, it's still a, a very open question, and I, I believe that all suggestions you may have we would be very welcome. Oh, so we'll, we'll do some brainstorming here about yeah, this. Yeah. But as a new member of the National Assembly, how do you see this? I mean, you and your colleagues, um, do you plan to represent in the traditional way representatives have filled that role in the past? Are you thinking about different ways of representing? So, um, not at all. So, because I'm a member of the government, I'm no longer a member of parliament. Ah. But nevertheless, I still have, you know, uh, I talk on a constant basis with yeah. my um, uh, former M fellow MPs. Uh, yes. And so <clears throat> I know that they're really trying to reinvent politics. It takes time, but in the way they, they, um, they interact with their uh, constituents, um, the way they use social media, uh, the way they use technology, the way they also um, uh, gather input from, from citizens. I know that I cannot talk about that in details, but yeah. um, clearly this is something that is um, critical, I think, to En Marche, and this is really something that En Marche is trying to push, is citizen engagement. Why was En Marche so strong? Because citizens felt that they could have an impact on, on policies and policy making somehow. And so I think that this link is still very important. And, um, and what, what, what we're doing now, um, what the, the, the movement is doing now, is really trying to, to build a, a platform to do that. So uh, involve people in projects, Mm. Or uh, I'm going to try and, and work on policies based on the input of, of mm. the members of En Marche. Th this is, I think, quite a powerful way of uh, keeping the movement alive. Thank you. Let's open this up to questions, comments. Uh, we don't have mic. Do we have mics there? Well, do we have roving mics here? Uh, okay. Let's uh, let's start over there. Should I say my name and affiliation like they did with the forum yeah. or not? Yeah. yeah. I'm Joshua Forstenzer. I'm a fellow at the Ash Center. Uh, full disclosure, I'm French and American, and as a result, that means I have a particular view on this. I'd like to start by thanking all the people on the panel for giving quite an in-depth perspective that actually is often lacking in the media reporting from all sides, both the actors and quite perceptive commentary. The question that really bothers me, I guess, um, is one of continuing worry. And to a certain extent, Guillaume actually touched on this. It's very possible that in five years' time, a populist, and more than likely a populist of the right, may well win the next election. We have some decent reason for worrying about this right now, one of which is that the parliamentary elections saw a historically low turnout. So there's not great support for the movement as a whole that Macronisme may represent. But the other worry, and this is one that we didn't really touch up on very deeply, is the role that really Macron's gamble, or gambit, uh, represents in Europe. That fundamentally, for 
many people in France, what Macron has to deliver in order to want to vote for him again is a fundamental change, at least within the Eurozone, in terms of the balance of power with Germany and the likelihood of austerity being a permanent state of affairs for not just Southern Europe, but France itself. So I'd like to know what you think on that. Who'd I, like that one? I hope, that, <laughs> I hope he remains lucky because otherwise... Uh, uh, well, uh, as it happens, I've just finished a, an article on uh, France and Germany and the upcoming German election this Sunday, uh, which deals with this very issue. So, uh, yes, one of the reasons for uh, enthusiasm for Macron was that he promised uh, strong support for Europe and a better relationship with Germany. Uh, he's also promised uh, uh, a, a European-level budget and uh, one early approval from Merkel. Uh, during the campaign, Angela Merkel invited Macron to come visit her in Berlin, uh, the only candidate to receive that favor. So it was as though uh, she was uh, giving her endorsement, although there was no official endorsement, to Macron. The question was always, is there anything behind that more than symbolism? Uh, and the answer seems uh, likely to be no. Uh, at the time uh, she invited him, Merkel was under some pressure from Martin Schulz, her, the social democratic candidate. That pressure has faded. Uh, Schultz is likely to lose by 11, 12, 15 points. Uh, in fact, uh, the Bundestag that emerges from the next election is likely to be more right-wing and may not even need a grand coalition. She may be able to form a pro uh, coalition with the uh, Free Democrats, and, uh, an anti-European party. Uh, so there may be even less reason uh, for Merkel to compromise. On the other hand, uh, Merkel is now entering her last term, or will be entering her last term, uh, and ha is looking to her legacy, her place in history. She will not want to be the chancellor who presides over the demise of the European Union, and a right-wing populist victory in France would almost certainly ensure the demise of the European Union. So I think she will make some steps uh, toward accommodating Macron, but nothing like what the most optimistic observers in France hoped. There will not be uh, large German support. There will not be large transfer payments. There will not be large stimulus coming from Germany. There will be some more support for a European investment bank uh, than there is currently. Uh, but it's not likely to be dramatic and not likely to make a big difference. On the other hand, the European economy is beginning to turn around. Uh, we've begun to see growth. France had 1.7% growth uh, last year, somewhat higher than forecasts. And as a result, the uh, uh, Ministry of the Economy yesterday announced that uh, uh, the tax cuts are going to be less, uh, 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 tax increases are going to be less severe uh, than was feared. So uh, there are positive signs, but uh, there's not going to be a transformation of Europe, uh, European economic policy. Comment? Comment? So, um, no, economic. Economics is not enough to transform Europe. I completely agree with you. Uh, but you need uh, strong political will and vision. And I think you can only do that and you can only be credible with your European partners if you implement some of the reforms and, and if you transform your country. And at this, at this point, you know, France, 
public expenditure is just unsustainable. And I think, I think it's about transforming your country domestically so that you become more credible. Um, and, then, and then you just, you have to have vision. And this is what is really lacking for Europe. You know, we need to bring, to bring politics back to Europe. Um, and I think this is really what, what the government is trying to do, the French government. Uh, is trying to do. I was myself in Germany. I've, I've interacted with them already three times, um, <clears throat> and, and the prime minister with the, was in, in, in Germany also recently. So I think together we will try and, and rebuild Europe, um, and, and I think this is this is feasible. Yeah. Let me uh, just suggest we get a few questions, uh, and then respond so that we can get more engagement. So uh, here. Uh, there <laughs> uh, and there. Okay, you first. Yep. Yep. And then Jenny, and then back over here. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm Charles Sustin here at the Fletcher School, also French. Um, I very much enjoyed your presentation. Very informative. But I hear that most of what you come up with is about a vision, which is great. But I would like to know how you measure tangible changes and tangible measures to bring to the French people? Will it be, say, a significant cut in the unemployment rate? Will it be a certain amount um, you know, of the debt going down? I don't know. I, I'm wondering what kind of exactly tangible information you have out there and how you will measure your success during your time in government. Yes. I wonder if each of you could give an example of an insight that came from these conversations at, that mm. then became a policy. Mm. That's I had like a little bit of a long question. Um, can you shorten it? I can, I can try to shorten it. Yeah, please. Uh, my name is Jason, no affiliation, but I do have some history in uh, digital marketing. Um, Macron's campaign was based on Obama's digital marketing and on the ground strategy, which at this point, I think it's safe to say is about 10 years old now. Um, Donald Trump has a lot of evidence pointing to a lot of brute force, dark money um, campaign contributions that included hyper-targeting. So in France, uh, did you see a lot of hyper-targeting in this election? Mm -hmm. And if so, um, how was that combated? So maybe we can start with the issue questions and then go to the technology question. Go ahead. No, you should. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, I give afterwards. You should start and I'll... Because so, these two um, are quite related. So, yeah. um, regarding the vision, so <clears throat> you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we have the typical uh, indicators that we're going to use that uh, most countries are using. You know, is your public expenditure reducing? How many jobs are you creating? But you have to understand that we've been in office for three months. Um, I would love to, you know, um, but, but this is what we're going to use. I mean, we have critical, so things. We also want to do things differently. We're not going to comment on unemployment rates every month because this would be just, this is what happened with the previous government and it's never led to anything. Uh, but every three months, we're going to look at unemployment figures. And, and, and uh, reducing unemployment is really, I think, the main metrics um, that we're going to be using, probably. Do you have really. an example for Jenny? Uh, an example. Um, um, in, in, sorry. In Vaucluse. Oh, yeah, in Vaucluse. Uh, and that led to a policy change. Um, so, 
change in my own policy? Uh, many, <laughs> um, perhaps just concretely in my own, uh, related to my, to my ministry, I would talk about um, maybe the, um, I'm trying to translate it in English, into English, uh, ecological transition uh, contracts. Generally, these are ways of the state is partnering with the region um, to encourage the region to make uh, changes that are uh, good for the environment. And so generally it's very top down. And so uh, out of the conversations that, that, that we had, um, the idea was to do it the other way around. The region is proposing uh, what it can do with what it has, and then the state provides support. I know it sounds pretty crazy in the US because it doesn't, um, from your point of view, but in France, it's, we're such a centralized and top-down country that this is a revolution mm. itself. Yeah, yes, we talked about it, for example, but it's not only, uh, but a policy change, you have to have a lot of people who actually think um, cannot be only one person. Yeah, so I think the, so coming back to La Grande Marche, I think the objective was not so much to ask people's, you know, what advice they had in terms of what policies should be implemented. It was more about understanding how they viewed that. I'll give you one example. So two, there were eight questions, and amongst those questions, there were two very simple, what works in France, what doesn't work in France. And, and sometimes people, uh, to what works in France, they were saying schools, what doesn't work in France, the education system. So, no, I'm, I'm literally, I'm using that system. It's interesting, you know, what's close to you, local, where you send your kids, it's concrete, the schools, it works. But when you think of the system, it's far away in Paris, you don't know who makes it, etc. So, again, maybe it's very basic, uh, but I think it's quite, then if you're trying to sell a reform of the education system, it's quite important to make sure that, for example, you'll give more autonomy to school. I think that was in the program. Like they would give more autonomy to local school. So that's, I think, one, one, uh, mm. one, uh, one example. That's a good example. Mm. And, and the technology question? Uh, We're I think, making you yeah, work so no, yeah. Yeah, You know, when I arrived here, I had never campaigned. So I was just a, maybe a, sm a smart, I would say, you know, uh, an observer of campaigns. I, I was interested in politics, but I'd never campaigned. When I was sent, uh, you know, uh, knocking at doors uh, uh, to, uh, for Obama, I was wondering how people dared calling that the most modern campaign in history. You know, when <laughs> everything that happened is like you were just, uh, not very technology uh, driven. No? Um, but the rationale behind is that there has been a lot of scientific experiment done to compare the effectiveness of different campaign techniques. And door-to-door -door always came up on top as the most effective way to, 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 to get out the vote. And I don't think that will change. I think we, we need human interaction. I think we need that. I don't think Twitter uh, or email uh, can, can replace everything. I think I'd, we need to have those conversations. It was true in the 60s, the, uh, the 50s, the 60s. It changed at some point. The paradigm in campaign changed, but there's the reason uh, it came back to direct contact. It's just because people realize it has always been working. It's just at some point you thought TV was better because you produce one TV spot, then you can show it to millions of people. You think that's easy. Oh, that's really cool. The problem is nobody cares. You also and it doesn't change people's minds. You also make a big commission on the TV spot. Yeah, maybe we should move to that business model. <laughs> we should talk about that later. Um, uh, so I don't think that that will change. 
Regarding hyper-targeting, there are many limitations to what you can do in France in terms of political propaganda. So, we, for example, you can't advertise on social media. It's forbidden by law during the campaign period, so it's very limited. So, so again, but I think, again, let's never forget that winners write history. So Trump won, he won the best campaign. No, no. Clinton's campaign was much better organized. There were many problems with the campaign, but in terms of campaign organization, use of data, they were much better than, than Trump was. Trump hired the firm Cambridge Analytica three months before the election. You know, uh, Clinton had been working for four years on, on the models, etc. So uh, I think that what Trump showed is that the Trump's campaign innovation is Trump tweeting. I don't think that can be replicated very easily. I don't think it should be replicated very easily, but that's my, my opinion. Um, so when it comes to hyper-targeting, what we do see in Europe is uh, more and more data that makes targeting model better. That, that, that exists. The, only, the main difference with the US is the fact we can't target people at the individual level, so we have to work with aggregate data. It has to do with privacy law, but it doesn't mean the campaign is less effective. Uh, you target a building block instead of targeting one individual, but it still helps you save a lot of time and you know, uh, concentrate the, your forces where, where you should. Um, and first thing. Second thing, never overestimate the effect of social media. Uh, so far, what scientific uh, evidence show, uh, I mean very f there are no experiments who show that it changed people's minds. It, it may, there may be some at some point. Uh, there's a lot of experiment running for the German campaign. We'll see that. Uh, but my view is, um, you know, uh, don't believe what people claim in the news. Test it and measure it. And that's why Dr. Do came back to campaigning, because it was systematically measured as an effective uh, campaign tool. And if social media becomes effective, may, uh, we'll embrace it, of course, as they should. Uh, can Thank I you. make one yeah. comment about uh, what you can learn from conversations? Uh, obviously, I was not in conversations as a practitioner of politics, but I was a just in France last week, uh, uh, giving lectures at a convention of small businessmen, 4,500 uh, small business leaders from across France. So I spoke to several dozen of them and asked the Ed Koch question, how, how is he doing? Uh, and the answer, uh, this is a group that is generally quite supportive of Macron, uh, and their answer was uh, positive but skeptical. They liked the labor code reform, uh, which is what they wanted to, to see as his first move. He, f he, he learned from his predecessor's mistake that you should do what you say you're going to do at the beginning of your presidency. Uh, he moved uh, swiftly and effectively and listened to the unions, and there was some give and take, so he modified his position. And the business leaders were impressed with that. They think he's a pragmatic guy who thinks in business-like terms the way they do. But, uh, and this was a but that was frequently underscored, um, it hasn't gone far enough and we don't think this is really going to deliver a major improvement in the unemployment figures. It will be an encouragement at the margins to hire more people, but it's not deep enough and what's he going to do next? So uh, that was what I gathered uh, in my conversations last week. Yeah, and the other thing I just want to emphasize is the, the, um, the limits on campaign spending in France uh, and access to media and all the rest of it emphasizes the human dimension far more than what's happened here, which is there are no limits. And so what we really have here is a political marketing industry. 
about nine billion dollars a year, which still hasn't supplanted the work of politics in Europe. And, and I think it's important to learn from this about what it actually looks like to do politics and not just political marketing, which is where we're being pushed in that direction. So I, I think the technology question is a very important one, as is your comment about data, technology, and human beings. Very, very important dimension. We're, we're almost, okay, let's get about three more questions and then, and then we're gonna need to wrap up. So, uh, Muriel, uh, over here, and uh, there in the back. All right, thank you. Muriel Rouillet, I'm a professor of political science from France, um, uh, an ardent supporter of Macron during his campaign, a bit disappointed after the election, like many French. Uh, so my question actually was on money. What is the role of money? Could you comment on the role of money, crowdfunding versus big donors, which of course happen under a certain limit, which yeah. compared to America is nothing like America, but still. And uh, so money and transparency, because after the election, it's difficult to avoid the feeling that this um, moment of openness and deliberation has yielded to a much more a seclusive atmosphere and a kind of assaulted fortress uh, where uh, the president is now in this Jupiterian, uh, you know, pinnacle and avoiding well, the press, Jupiterian. even insulting the press at the UN um, uh, assembly uh, yesterday, saying that the French press is narcissistic and only cares about communication. <clears throat> so, <laughs> yes, uh, so I see here the difference between campaigning and governing, of course, but. Could you address those issues and uh, in the spirit of what yourself you said, which is to sustain this movement yeah. of openness and going out of the office and of traditional uses of uh, party politics? Okay. Thank you. And over, where okay. Was it? Yes. Uh, uh, Enig University of Lille and uh, Peace Research Institute, Paris. My question is a little bit similar, but it has two sides. Uh, first, Macron came as uh, Charlemagne of Europe, and now there is a kind of Jupiterian image uh, that is uh, uh, pointed out by uh, many medias. Maybe uh, even in France there are some writing which would like to emphasize this uh, part of his, uh, uh, of his behavior. I don't know what's uh, your comment on this. And the other side of the question is that uh, in his last interview, uh, um, in the uh, which was published by Le Point, uh, there was uh, an expression of him that caught my attention about creating a new image of France, new ideas and new heroes. Uh, do you have any idea who are these heroes and uh, ideas and images of France? Thank you. Jupiter seems to be doing quite well <laughs> over there. It, it, it's his work. Uh, over there? No? Well, let's just, uh, yeah, way in the corner. Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Sahar. I'm a student in Middle Eastern studies here. Um, I'm also French, but I don't need to say that because there's the biggest concentration of French uh, <laughs> in Harvard right now. Um, my question is about race, which we don't really talk about in France because we like living in denial. Um, so you, you said that you campaigned because you were afraid of the far right winning. This is extremely surprising for someone like me who, um, whose whole uh, entourage is extremely involved in anti-racist movements in France because literally like almost every activist I know didn't vote or voted blank because they didn't want it to vote for Macron who would just be a soft bigot 
instead of uh, you know against Le Pen because they were saying oh so he's now it's it's very easy to say you're against racism to to gather votes and then once the election is done nothing uh, nothing changes so I want to say regarding the fact that there was um, a year and a half ago a study that showed that like for example French Muslims um, um, are four times more discriminated than Latinos and African Americans in the U.S. And for the Latinos and African Americans here, I'll let you imagine what they can, uh, what that can be like. Um, uh, seeing also the fact that Macron didn't raise uh, any objection to the previous laws existing in France, um, for example, that legalize that, that make it impossible for veiled women to work in uh, public. Uh, public uh, offices in France, and that legalized uh, the fact for private... We, we are uh, getting to a question. We are getting to a question. Do not worry. <laughs> it's not because it's so not talked about. I need to, a little bit of introduction. I'm sorry. Um, so also the fact that France legalized the fact for private companies that they can legally fire veiled women um, without any... Without any you know, further like impending like juridical issues uh, after that. So I want to say uh, Macron won because a lot of people were afraid of the far right. What I want to ask is, what are you going to do actually about race? Because we have we have discrimination in a, like in, in, a, in a scale that is extremely extremely like being denied in France. Uh, we have violence, police violence issues. We have hundreds of deaths in France because of police violence that we do not talk about unless we have a case like Theo and then it's being mediatized. Uh, what happened with the Burkini, uh, if people follow like uh, news here, is not something new in France. We have these kind of polemics. I Almost every month, uh, every week. What I want to ask is, Macron campa campaigned on this fear of the far right. What are you actually going to do okay. about this issue in France? Got the question. So the, the question about race, the question about, about Jupiter, uh, about Jupiterian tendencies. Is this the... Oh, and money. Okay. Those are, those are modest questions. Oh. Who'd like to dive into this? And then we're going to need to wrap Maybe up. Maybe I'll just jump yeah. in very quickly regarding the Jupiter. Um, uh, and I don't want to be stuck in the role of like defending um, at all costs uh, the president. But if you want to implement change, um, you have to have a long-term vision. And you cannot just talk to the media the way uh, previous uh, presidents in France have been uh, used to do. You have to... I think you, you have to just uh, go beyond that and refuse to comment uh, all uh, the comments of the press all the time. And I think this is absolutely critical to keep, to keep just working. You know? Would you like to say anything about money or race? Um, <laughs> regarding race, you're right. I mean, we can do way, way, way better. The scope for improvement is absolutely huge. Um, and and I, uh, this is not something I'm directly going to be working on, but this is, uh, I think, something we can do much better on. Absolutely. Hang on. Hang on. Yeah. No, but I mean, if you look at the National Assembly, look at the yeah. National Assembly now and look five years ago. I mean, the minorities are much more represented. Wait, can you let them answer the question, yeah. please? So, so that's, I mean, there's, it's slow progress. You know, we um, after the, the Hollande campaign, we wrote a book, uh, and at some point we, in the book we wrote, if Barack Obama had run in France, he would never have been elected conseiller général, which is a very low-key uh, 
elected option. There was a problem with the representation of minorities in parliament. There were 1% of the, I mean, literally there were like one or two MPs. I don't know how many there are, but many more. So that, that's a change. And regarding what they're going to do, I, I don't know because I'm, I'm not in government. Um, uh, but I think that is key. And you should, I mean, that is, that is a big jump. And, you know, if you uh, want to, uh, you should look at the situation, uh, uh, you know, uh, as objectively as possible. And I think this is a, a very big jump. What Macron will do uh, afterwards, uh, I, I don't know. But I, I think the, the question of fighting the far rights, there's certainly the race dimension, but that's not the only dimension. No. Uh, there's also a dimension that people, you know, white people, you know, feel uh, abandoned by traditional politicians. And uh, in many cases, that was, you know, what, that was one, one of the main driver for people for people to vote, I mean, the, there's more and more people who do not have racist motive who vote for the National Front. It's not normal. And one answer to this is what En Marche are starting to do, being in the field, listening to people. But it's not a magic trick that would change things overnight. It will take time. And many of the questions you ask are like, hey, what are you going to do? Hey, things take time. Huh? Changing the world takes time. Changing friends takes even more time. <laughs> so, uh, so and, uh, no, if I may, on the money thing. Oh, money, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, um, so the money thing, yeah, we didn't talk about it, but uh, what was amazingly impressive is the effort to fund ra raise funds. Because in France, most parties are publicly funded, so if you start a new party, you just have zero money. Because it's based on how many votes you got at the past election. So if you're a new party, nothing like that. So uh, Macron's team set up an amazing fundraising uh, operation. It was a combination of, you know, traditional fundraising, dinners were big, I mean, big donors, you can't give more than 8,000, uh, 8, uh, uh, yeah, but then 8,000, oh, yeah, the truth, okay. Uh, you can't give too much money, okay. Uh, so, uh, so, but there were, it was very organized, and there was, it was, people were amazingly professional. They raised uh, 12 million euro, I think, uh, which is, yeah, it, it's, okay, it's the US, it seems very small. No, 12 million euros, it's, it's more than half of the, the oh, amount of money you can spend for a presidential uh, campaign. That's about but half of Congress. Yeah, it's, it's like, it would be like raising 500 million dollars yeah. here. Okay, so it's quite a lot of money. Uh, and it was done very professionally by a combination of crowdfunding, so small, I mean, <laughs> it was very cute. So people sending like, you know, $50 euro uh, a bill with a small note saying, you know, I don't have much, that's why I can. I mean, you know, there are many, many examples like this. And also there was a, a, another operation which was targeting uh, big donors. But I mean, that's what they had to do. Uh, and they did it amazingly well. The fundraising team is amazing. This, the candidate who raised, uh, the, the second candidate raised as much, was 4 million. So Macron 12 and the next one like 4 million. So you can imagine how effective uh, uh, they were. Let me just suggest, I think we're five minutes over. So let me just suggest if each ah, person... We're French now. Ah, okay, we're not on time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think France has a monopoly on, uh, on that. Uh, good wine, perhaps, but I don't know about... No, I know. No, so I wonder if each person could take a minute or two to sort of sum up their reflections, and then we'll conclude. Art, you want to start? Uh, well, uh, on the issue of money, uh, I... Uh, France is unfortunately less transparent than the United States. There are vast sums of money uh, flowing into American campaigns, but there are also laws governing the publication of information about where that money comes from. That's not the case in France. Uh, because of the Fillon scandal, one of Macron's first uh, priorities was to pass a law on the moralization of politics. 
But this concentrated on uh, what, to my mind, is the penny ante aspect of money in politics, the hiring of uh, the nepotism, uh, hiring of uh, 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 family members to work as uh, parliamentary assistants and so on, uh, s small amounts of money being transferred uh, for the personal gain of politicians. This doesn't deal with the question of influence of uh, major interests in the economy on the uh, uh, formation of political ideas. So there, uh, b behind Macron, there are several think tanks, the Institut Montaigne, Terra Nova, and so on. And we don't know a whole lot about who finances them and uh, how the money flowing into those organizations influence the ideas that shape Macron's campaign. I think we need more laws uh, governing uh, transparency in campaign financing. I mean, not just on money, but what would you like to wrap up with? Um, <coughs> something pretty obvious, but um, change takes time, really. Um, and this is, and I think this is the main message that we're trying to um, to share with the, with the French citizens. If you want to implement change, somehow you need you know patience, and this requires a totally different way of working. Uh, one way of, of of working is taking distance with the media so that you actually you own time yourself. Um, and I think this is really the main message. Not the media, but this approach. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but many things. But uh, maybe I'll try to end with a kind of an optimist uh, touch, if I may, you know, because we're in America, yeah. the country of optimism. Yes, this is good. Uh, yeah, because before that I was a dark yeah, French person yeah, yeah, right. looking at the, the dark side of life, <laughs> yeah, and now right. I'm, you know, I'm a bright French guy yeah. who thinks everything uh, can happen. No, I think uh, uh, two, two sources of optimism. Um, the first is that uh, there, is, there are many people in Europe who look at the example of En Marche to try to replicate it. Um, I think that's interesting. Uh, people want to start new parties, existing parties try to want to learn from this. I think, uh, I think that's, uh, that's a source of optimism in the sense that what Europe lacks today is showing it can be close to citizens. And if you see a lot of uh, European political movement who share a pro-Europe platform it will also embrace the idea of going back to the field. I mean, maybe eventually all this together with you know, a dose of optimism, maybe that will uh, create some change also with the relationship French citizen have, uh, European citizens have with the European uh, institutions. So that's uh, one example. Uh, the other uh, source of, of optimism is I think there are still many things to try. You know, when you've not exhausted all your options, I think you're still in, 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 a, in a good shape. And we, we can learn a lot from what happened in the US. I remember reading uh, a New Yorker piece called uh, Clinton and the Populist Revolt by George Packer. Mm. Uh, it was written before the election, and they were interviewing Clinton. Uh, and she was uh, describing why she would lose the election. And it was just amazing. Uh, and I think it was very instructive. And it, has to, it had a lot to do with the Democratic Party disconnection with uh, working class. I mean, it's more complicated than this. But the, and what's fascinating is that she knew everything, but she did not manage to, uh, to change this. So we're lucky enough to be able to learn from the fact that uh, when you realize that you can't, people don't trust you anymore, and you can't do something about it. Well, uh, I mean, Clinton did not no. change the, the, the course of, of her campaign. And, and I think that yeah. 
uh, Emmanuel Macron certainly uh, capitalized on some of those lessons. But again, I don't think uh, Macron as a candidate and now Macron as a president has the answer to everything. But there are many, many new things to test. And that's why I'm uh, reasonably uh, optimistic on what, uh, what En Marche can bring. And I hope that you'll invite us again in a couple of years yeah. to, you know, to, to share uh, all the things <coughs> that would have been accomplished uh, by then. Very much. We look forward to that. Uh, Tom Hayden said change is slow except when it's fast. Uh, <laughs> and we've had a fast moment here, and now we get to observe the slower moment. Uh, and we can also hope for just a little bit of luck, too, Art, mm -hmm. uh, as well. Thank, let's thank our panelists for joining <laughs>